Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today with Dr. Mike Fabares, the pastor at Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, California, a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Talbot School of Theology, author of multiple books. But today we want to talk to him about his most recent book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. Pastor Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, Sean and Scott. Well, let, let me start off by asking you kind of a broader question, if that's okay, before we jump into the particulars of your book. You've been pastoring for three decades, and I'm curious, how have the questions changed that you get asked as a pastor, or the issues you have to address through this period of time? Well, that's a great question, and things have changed, certainly in the last uh, three decades. I think I got a lot of questions early on about, you know, the application and implication of biblical truth, and it seemed that through the decades, more and more the questions shifted to, you know, what is truth, and is it really true? And there's always an increasing pressure, it seems, in our culture of late to conform, you know, God and the Bible to whatever we might like, and so it's certainly gotten to the place where the questions I get seem to be focused more and more on the foundation. What is true? What is truth? Who is God? How do we know? Uh, you know, it's not just what we believe, but a lot more now, why are we supposed to believe that? That's really interesting. Would you say you get the same questions from both Christians and non-Christians, or are there different kind of questions that they ask? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I certainly get uh, a, a different flavor, a different feel. I mean, non-Christians, it seems today, more than ever, I mean, to be honest, they're a lot more unfriendly, a lot more assertive, a lot more dismissive, I think, in the questions that they ask. And there may be, uh, it may be germane to the kinds of questions I'm getting from Christians at the end of a sermon or on the patio or in the emails that I get from my own congregation. Uh, they're the same kinds of questions, but you know, it's like someone insulting your wife, you know, there's a, a sense in which you've got someone trying to say, well, I need to figure out why they would say that about her, and, and why are they asking this about God? And, and there's a lot of, of need, I think, from Christians today for careful definitions. You know, cultural Christianity, as it's moved more toward, you know, self-centeredness, to kind of have our people look at the Bible and say, why is it that uh, the God of the Bible is the way he is? And, and how can I make sure I can discuss this God with my neighbors and my friends in a way that uh, will help them to understand? So, you know, I, I do a lot of call-in shows and, and obviously get a lot of questions as a pastor from non-Christians, but I, I just find that a lot of the issues are the same. I think how those questions are asked are a lot different. Mike, let's turn to the questions that, that deal with your book on the afterlife. Because um, uh, theologians, I think, have often one approach to this that might differ a bit from philosophers. And not, not that you're neither a philosopher or a theologian, but primarily in your role as a pastor, how do you uniquely approach questions of the afterlife? Well, I, I certainly see there is a difference, uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time. As I read a lot of things and leading up to writing this most recent book on the afterlife, I read a lot of theologians and a lot of philosophers, but uh, I know that when I'm dealing with these issues week in and week out, uh, you know, I, I'm dealing with them on a, on a personal level. I mean, just this last, in the last, I'd say, seven days, I had two congregants 
that I really love and know well pass away. They died, and I've been there in their homes and at their side, and I'm talking to their loved ones, to their wife, to their children about the afterlife in a way that can't be detached, it can't be theoretical, you know, it can't just be, you know, pie in the sky, theological. It's practical. And for them, I mean, in their pain and their difficulties, I'm holding the hand of a loved one who dies and now having to turn to a family that's grieving. I mean, they want to know where, where did they go and do they have bodies and where, when will we see them again and how do we know for sure this is true? I, I kind of see it as the difference between someone who's sorting mail at the post office and the mail carrier who's standing there talking over the mailbox at the end of the driveway with people he loves and knows in his neighborhood. I mean, I, I appreciate the mail sorters and the people that are hammering out the issues of theological, philosophical questions about the afterlife. But, you know, I feel like pastors are on the front line having to deal with the people who are there in the poignancy of losing a loved one, and we have to deal with those situations. Not just the, the loss of a loved one, but the people that are dying. I had a great conversation with both of these congregants just three days before each of them died and talking about the afterlife. That's a kind of discussion, unfortunately, a lot of theologians don't get to have as often as the pastor. And I think it does shape uh, kind of how we go about describing these things and, and how we even carefully present this truth to people, particularly when the news is not always good news. Yeah, I mean, I, I, appreciate, I so appreciate the uh the approach that you're taking being on the front lines of this and delivering the mail as so to speak uh because i think in a lot of, in a lot of cases pastors look to philosophers and theologians for you know the mail sorting that you describe but i i think there's a lot to be said for pastors and folks like you who are on the front lines of this actually setting the agenda for what philosophers and theologians ought to be thinking and writing about uh to, to help better serve those of you who are in the trenches in the local church. Well, absolutely. I mean, I do think you find that theologians and philosophers sometimes do their best work in the wake of their own personal pain, and they're taking their theology and putting it where the rubber meets the road in life. And you've seen that from folks writing great works about the afterlife after the death of their family member or their child or their spouse. And it's you know, those sometimes are, are the most riveting books to read because you've got some very intelligent, insightful, well-read people addressing issues through that uh, kind of that matrix of their own pain. And, and uh, sometimes that's helpful because that's, that's where we live. We're human beings, and, and we experience loss, and we're dealing with death, and we hate it. And the Bible says it's an enemy. And, and so to deal with this in a non-detached, non-theoretical way, to get out of the ivory tower and into you know, the streets of the everyday life of loss and pain and question about the unknown that so many people struggle with. I mean, we've got to do that, and I think that's where some of our best work comes, uh, whether we're pastors or theologians. It's, uh, it's where we have to think. We have to live in that application of truth, not just discovering what it is, but how does it work in real life? Let me pursue this a little bit further uh, and deal with a scenario that I sure you, I'm sure you deal with all the time, at, which is at the bedside, uh, dealing with a, a patient who's at the end of a terminal illness. Um, how, how does the, the, you know, the notion that death is a conquered enemy, uh, I think is a very powerful one biblically, um, how, does that, how does that help shape the conversations that you have with folks uh, that you counsel with, families that you deal with who are sort of in the middle of walking down that road of the end right. of life with a loved one? Well, I'm hoping, certainly the people that I've just dealt with this last week, and of course comes down a long line of folks that unfortunately are 
facing terminal illnesses, if they're coming from my own congregation, I remind them, and it's not hard for them to connect, the fact that what we're doing every time we open the Bible, every time we study God's Word, uh, we're dealing with things that are supracultural. They go beyond just our lives and our work, and, you know, and it's not just the sermons about 10 steps to have a you know, better relationship or make your kids mind. It really comes down to you know, heaven and hell and God and truth and redemption and Christ. And, and, and I often, in both cases this last week, I held their hand and I said, remember, everything that we gather to worship about, everything we talk about, we open the Word of God, is all leading to this. This is the test of the reality of our theology. Is death conquered? Did Christ solve the problem? Is the wages of sin is death? You're facing this bodily, biological element of that death. I mean, don't you know that everything we've been dealing with, everything we've been talking about, everything we've been celebrating and worshiping Christ for is now at its point of, of, of testing. But this is it. We have hope in death. Uh, Herbert Lockyer wrote a book years ago, and he wrote a ton of them, you know, uh, kind of listing all the things in the Bible. One of them was The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. And to kind of look at the way non-Christians die and the way that Christians die it's night and day, and I can't write my own book. I don't have as much experience, perhaps, as Lockyer, but, I mean, I've certainly been by the bedside and held hands of people that are not saved. And to see the difference in people that don't have the connection to the big themes that I hope are what is in view, every time the Bible is exposited in their churches, uh, that's when they start to recognize uh, this is what it's all about. This is the hope we've been praying for. This is why the forgiveness of sins and Christ's redemption is central. It calms our conscience. It, it removes our sin. It gives us hope beyond the grave. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's rooted in a bodily, physical resurrection of Christ. And once you move away from those things and church becomes a self-help, practical, you know, hee-haw, you know, then unfortunately we're now trying to think theologically in our last moments of life. So I found that, you know, bringing them back to everything that we've dealt with theologically, the big themes of Scripture, which I hope are in the pulpits of more and more churches that care about Scripture, uh, they make that connection. And there's been a great peace in the people that I know that genuinely are trusting in Christ as they face those final hours. Yeah, that, uh, that's really helpful, Mike. I, what I found you know, in my work as, as in bioethics, uh, I've spent a lot of time consulting for hospitals and have spent a lot of time at the bedside as well. Mine has been more with physicians and healthcare professionals as opposed to families. But uh, I am, I'm struck by how frequently believing families uh, and believing patients feel like they have to do everything possible to extend earthly life at all, at all times and at all costs. And I remind them that because death is a conquered enemy, death need not always be resisted. And there right. are times, families I think have found this very freeing to, to realize that there are times under the right conditions where it's appropriate to say enough to medicine right. and, to, Absolutely, uh, and to, to essentially entrust their loved one back to the Lord uh, and remove and just allow death to take its natural course. Now, that's to be carefully done and under the right conditions. Um, but I think they've, they've, they've never really thought much about this idea of death being a conquered enemy and therefore, it's the therefore that matters. And therefore, it need not always be resisted. Um, and I've, I find that m most of the patients that I've dealt with, uh, they are much more afraid of lingering on in this terrible condition as opposed to you know, allowing death to take its natural course and going home to be with the Lord. 
No, I agree. And I think, unfortunately, it, it, it reflects sometimes a deficiency, uh, you know, an anemic kind of theology that is all about being healthy and wealthy. If Christianity is used as a tool to simply increase my my comfort and my, my, you know, my bottom line financially or my happiness, uh, this then looks like uh, completely antithetical to that. But if we recognize this life is not what it's about, and you think of so many scriptures that remind us that you know, we're, we're, our citizenship is in heaven, our minds are set on things above, if that's the real fabric of the, of the Christian hope, then people, I think, won't resist that death in the panic that, that non-Christians do, and you will begin to see that distinction. And, and frankly, I'm so proud of some of these recent uh, saints that have died in my church that just have had that clarity about the fact that this is a conquered enemy, and the sting of death is gone, and we don't grieve as those who don't have hope, because we are, we are, we are counting on something in the future that has been settled in the historic past, and that's what we have to have clearly taught in our, in our pulpits. We have to have those things clearly discussed and understood cogently in the small groups of our churches so that we can look at death, di- death differently as a conquered enemy. That's critical. I agree fully, Scott. Here, here. Um, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've been around believing families when I've been tempted to ask, and I have it. I've held my tongue, thankfully, uh, but I've been tempted to say, you know, do you really believe this stuff about right. resurrection and eternity and death being a conquered enemy, because you are hanging, the way you're hanging on to earthly life, like you are, uh, sort of be- betrays your theology on this. Absolutely, no, for sure. Hey, Mike, I'm curious. Romans 12:15 talks about being happy with those who are happy, being sad with those who are sad. Sometimes our presence and just hurting with people is the right response. Yet you're talking about how it is this biblical truth that death has been conquered, this life is only temporary, that sets people free. What advice do you have for people with their loved ones who are at that stage of dying, of just towing that line between speaking biblical truth, but sometimes just being present with them? Yeah, well, you know, I am a speaker, I, a preacher, I, I mean, that's what I naturally engage in. But I'll tell you, if people watch me, and of course I bring my family or a pastor on our staff with me, they can testify to the fact that Pastor Mike is working harder at being present, uh, holding their hand, sitting there with them and discussing, uh, you know, their loved ones they'll leave behind that we're going to care for. There's a lot more of the, the physical presence and the relationship of someone who cares for them that's with them, that they're not alone. Uh, that's much more, I, I think, at least the foundation that uh, brings out, I, I think, the judicious and carefully worded statements of truth. Uh, truth is important, and I'm all about truth, but if, if they don't have a sense that you're walking through this with them, if they think you're just coming in to drop the truth bomb in the midst of their, their pain, then it'll come off as a platitude or some kind of, you know, just a, a principle you're throwing out as opposed to, I, I feel your pain, and I understand the difficulty of this. And I don't think there's a time when you're dealing with someone in those terminal hours, those last few days, that unless you're cold-hearted, you don't walk in and, and experience this with them. I mean, I, I've been there at dinner, getting the phone call, someone's on the edge of death, and, and you take, a, you, you take a, a deep breath, and you have to pray, you have to transition into, okay, I'm not just walking into an assignment here. This is uh, someone who's really hurting, and I've got to walk through this with them. And I think it's, not, it's 80% presence and, and maybe 20%, okay, remind them of things that you've been teaching them over the years that you know they believe and bring their minds back to that. Because that truth does settle them, but it's the presence of people that love them that I think is the foundation for that truth. Amen. 
Hey, in your book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife, you really quickly moved to establish the Bible as authoritative for answering questions about the afterlife, not neuroscience, not philosophy, not someone's experience, but scripture. As you know, younger generations, say millennials and Gen Z, are increasingly skeptical of authorities outside of themselves. So I'm curious, as a pastor, how do you help younger generations consider the Bible authority, especially when they've seen so many abuses of power? No, I, I hear you, and I believe and I understand the problem, and I get it. But, you know, one of the illustrations I weave through an early chapter of the book is uh, about the sinking of a ship. I, I try to remind people that there are certain things that are authoritative over us, and the ultimate theme of the book is death is, right? No matter how much you don't like it, you don't want to submit to the authority of death, you're going to submit to the authority of death. Uh, as I like to say around here, the truth has hard edges, right? There's no getting around some things. I, I just happened to watch, funny, I wrote this story and kind of an imagined a sinking ship, and I just, Monday, I, I watched a uh, documentary on the sinking of the Costa Concordia, that Italian cruise liner, and uh, lots of people died. It was terrible. A lot of people love to stay in their cabins, and they'd like to be in their casinos or having dinners, but the problem is that laws of buoyancy uh, were in effect, and gravity, and physics, and so if you wanted to save yourself, you had to disrupt your life. You had to recognize the only way out of this is to get to a lifeboat right now. Get to your room, get that life preserver on, and, and you have to submit to this whether you like it or not. Facts don't yield to our feelings. And I understand that our new upcoming generation, they love their feelings. They love to be guided by their feelings. And it's all about how I feel and what I think, and it's about me. But we're not the authority. My feelings aren't the authority. You know, facts are never going to be shaped by what I feel. And, and there are certain things in life, and I think this is why it's so good for us to take our kids, like I try to, to bedside situations where people are dying and say, this is real life. There are things like this we have to consider. And getting a, you know, a new game console or going to the amusement park is never going to erase the reality that uh, there are things like death you have to prepare for. We have to figure this out. We have to logically, cogently understand why it's here. We have to see that everything that Christ has come to do has reversed the penalty of this thing called death. And so I, I get it. I understand it. I'd like to shape reality to my own self as well, but I can't. Gravity, physics, buoyancy, you know, the, the truth has hard edges, and we just have to come to reality. You can't give a trophy, you know, a participation trophy for everybody in life just because they've been here. And that's the culture, unfortunately, we've continued to uh, kind of put forth in this new generation. I'm not bashing them. I get it. I feel. I empathize with it all. I'd like the world to be the way many people are positing it to be. But uh, when you get down to it, I can't, I can't stop the aging process. I can't stop the, the, the cancer process. I can't stop you know, the death process. And, and we have to realize when it comes to certain things that God has set forth in his spiritual realm, like the wages of sin is death, and there is a lawgiver and judge, these things I can't get away from. Like kids in a classroom who'd love to not have that teacher up there. Uh, I think when I was a kid, uh, here's one, a long-term effect of laying out in the sun. You know, back in our day, when I was growing up in SoCal here, sunny SoCal, my wife and I grew up in Long Beach, and no one was putting on sunscreen, right? No one, I mean, then only the nerd would bring sunscreen to the beach. Everyone was just getting burnt and toasted, and the girls were putting on their, you know, their oils and their bronzing, you know, creams and all this. It was, it was ridiculous. And, and we had to recognize, and I think today's millennials recognize, if you don't want skin cancer, right, there's a long-term effect. You, you sowed to laying out and baking yourself every afternoon, you know, in the summer, you're, you're going you're gonna to reap from that. You have to realize, I may want to lay in the sun every day, 
but there are certain rules I can't ignore. And that's the, that's the reality of authority. There is a God. He has created the rules. We're accountable to him. And we just got to, we've got to settle into those hard facts. As a parent of a couple Gen Zers and uh, someone who speaks to Gen Zers a ton, I think your approach is just great and helpful. Uh, so thanks for responding the way you did. Let's move specifically to some of the chapters in your, in your book. You take some of the popular misconceptions people have about the afterlife and you give responses to them. So we'll just throw these out there to you and let you kind of take a few of the more popular ones. So one of the early ones you say is that all roads lead to heaven. What would you say? Yeah, well, everyone wants to say all roads lead to heaven, because why would we want to be so narrow-minded and exclusive? But it's like that sinking ship analogy that I just recommended that we think about. I mean, there's a lifeboat. That's the way off. I can't hold on to my view that, you know, there ought to be a helicopter on the deck, and, you know, why isn't there a submarine to get me off? There's a lifeboat. That's the solution. And the good news is that God has provided a solution to the problem of death, and the wages of sin, and unfortunately, people are sitting there turning their nose up at it because they think, I, I, I don't want it, it's, it's too exclusive. And, and there's a lot of people that will, that will drown in a sinking ship if they're saying, I don't want to get to the lifeboat because I wish there were a helicopter or a submarine to get me off. Uh, Jesus came to solve the problem. He's the only one who can speak authoritatively about the problem and the solution because he proved it. No other guru has done that, no other religious philosophy has done that. The exclusivity of Christ is another one of those truths that has the hard edge that we just got to accept. And in a panic, we will accept it. We don't, you know, I, I, I illustrate things like if I want to go scuba diving, I'm, I'm not going to fill my tank with, uh, you know, gummy bears, or I'm not going to fill it full of uh, helium. I, I need oxygen. If that's how I'm going to survive my dive today, I, I've got to have oxygen tanks. And that's just the reality. And again, that gets back to the reality that facts are not going to yield for my preferences or my feelings. And so if Christ came and provided the solution, we ought, to, we ought to rejoice, we ought to throw our hats in the air and say there is a solution. That's the good news. Now we have to analyze it, make sure it's truthful, make sure it's, it holds water and it makes sense, which I think it does. But uh, that is, we're stuck with that. There is a way, and God has provided it, he's revealed it, and he's, you know, speaking of the sinking ship, he's constantly putting out on the, on the, on the PA system on the ship, get to the lifeboats, get to our conscience, says it, our, 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 the, the preaching says it, a creation itself is leading us to the decks, and unfortunately uh, we say, well, I'd like more choice. And, and that's, that's great. I, I, I sympathize with it. I'd like a lot of choices, too. But when it comes to it, there's one way for me to get my sin problem dealt with. Mike, let me move to another, I think, misconception about eternity and heaven. Uh, we, often, we often tell people that there's just as much hope for your body as there is for your soul in the scripture. But I find most people don't believe that, uh, that they don't believe that there's a physical, there's a bodily part to our own resurrection uh, when we meet the Lord. Why, why is that important? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know how we... I can have hope as a human being that was created to be enmeshed and, and, and encased in this physical, tactile thing I have as a body if uh, somehow I'm supposed to, you know, imagine myself as Casper the Friendly Ghost. You know, I, I'm, I'm a person who is designed by God to be embodied. And so, of course, the Scripture makes this clear. It's just we've let popular culture uh, and, and television sitcoms or whatever we are uh, influence our minds to think that we're going to be some kind of translucent, see-through spirit. But the Bible is clear on this. And I just used the chapter to kind of summarize and carefully take that biblical data to present that hope. 
and I don't know how we can have much of a hope. It's like a turtle hoping to be a, you know, a, I don't know, a motorcycle. It doesn't make any sense for us to imagine something that God has made us to be without being specific that there's a correlation. Now, Randy Alcorn, of course, wrote a whole book, and much of it is about that physical, tactile reality. Uh, and he wrote hundreds of pages on the topic, and, and certainly I read that, and it's great material. Uh, and all I'm doing is synthesizing that when I find so many Christians that still don't know that we're going to live in a real place, eating real food, like the resurrected Christ, who had real taste buds, he had real teeth, he had an esophagus, he had a digestive tract, and, and he sat there with unglorified disciples eating in a glorified body, and First Corinthians 15 says, that is my hope. That's the archetypal experience that I'm supposed to look to to know what I'm to expect. And what I'm expecting is exactly what the Bible says, and that's a lot of feasting, a real reality. We're going to hug each other. We're going to have hair follicles on the top of our head. We're going to have nostrils. We're going to have earlobes. That's the reality. It's a resurrected body, of course, that's not subject to deterioration. It's impervious to disease and decay. But that's the picture in the Bible. I think the more we think about that and read that biblical data honestly, the more excited we become. If you don't see it that way, I don't know how excited you could be about being a ghost. So I, so I can be sure that my bum shoulder is going to be fixed when I meet the Lord? You can be sure of that, Scott, 100% sure of that. I'm That's glad, right. I'm glad to hear that. Maybe I'll get my jump shot back in heaven, too. <laughs> you might, um, but, I, but everyone else will have it back, too, so it's going to yeah, be a tough game. Sean might actually turn into a shooter in heaven. <laughs> so. Anytime you want to have a competition, Scott, I'm game. <laughs> Let me ask you another question on this, Mike. I, w I was with a, uh, a fairly prominent theologian who I greatly respect some time ago, and he made the claim that, uh, well, what put the, one of the people around the table with us has a child who has down, fairly severe form of Down syndrome. And he claimed that when, when we meet the Lord, uh, we will still have our physical infirmities like we do. In fact, he said, he looked at my friend and said, your, your son will still have Down syndrome when he meets the Lord. Because if he didn't, he would be a different person. I found that a really odd claim. Uh, what, would you, right. what would you make of that? Well, I think people make that claim oftentimes from one simple statement where Thomas is there and Jesus is before him and he shows him the scars. And I recognize that as, as a, um, an exception. I, I think that even as it says in the book of Revelation, this lamb as though he'd, he'd been slain. I mean, there's a picture of a remembrance of Christ's atoning work of suffering on our behalf. So I, I don't think I can take that one reference of the uniqueness of Christ showing scars and saying, well, my daughter who has spina bifida, she's got a, you know, a, she's paralyzed from the knees down, she can't walk, she has no calf muscles, they're all atrophied. I, I don't ever believe, nor have I told her, hey, you know what, get used to those leg braces because you're going to have those in eternity. I think the DNA, the, 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 the prescription of what God has Without all of its, uh, without of all of its problems, without any of its uh, uh, degeneration, without any of its, um, you know, uh, disease, is going to be restructured. The way I like to put it around here is, God's going to remanufacture our body back to the to the manufacturer's specs, back to what it should have been. And so, yeah, there may be some problems recognizing people here and there. I, I hope that. I mean, there's some folks that have a lot of physical ailments that affect their appearance, and, you know, people that are bald, I think, are going to have every follicle on their head working properly. Uh, but it, it, I think we'll get around that quickly. I think my daughter is going to be able to skip and jump and run. She's not going to be uh, uh, a, par a paraplegic anymore. I think Johnny Erickson Todd is going to be running through, you know, uh, the reality of the new earth. Uh, so I, I don't follow that 
but I understand where it comes from, and I've heard people use that one passage uh, to kind of come up with lots of theories about uh, taking our, our ailments with us into the kingdom, but I don't buy that at all. So, Mike, I was having a conversation with an atheist friend recently, and he said, gosh, how would I not get bored in heaven? He says, there's no emotional risk, there's no physical risk, there's no sin. He goes, I'd rather go to hell. Now, obviously, he doesn't understand the horror of hell, but he's raising right. a fair question of how are we not going to get bored in heaven? What would you say? Right. Well, let me, get, let me start at the end of that. You know, I'd rather be in hell. Of course, everyone pictures a party with all these degenerate friends. I mean, there's, Jesus spoke of it as outer darkness, complete loneliness, isolation. There'd be no parties in hell. There'd be no beer in hell. There'd be no light in hell. I mean, the reality of being away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, God takes all of his gifts with him. There's a passive element to God's judgment, and we can't sit there and give anyone hope that you're going to be with a lot cooler crowd, as the athe new atheists like to say, you know, hey, if there is a hell, you're going to be in good company. Well, you're not going to be in any company at all. But what I would say to people, because they're going to think, well, I'd rather be there and be eternally there because the jokes will be better and we'll have more fun and we'll party together. Well, here's the reality. I've, I've heard people say, and it's foolish, uh, like when a 92-year-old person dies in our church, I hear people don't know her very well say, oh, well, she lived a good life. Like everyone who loved her and cared about her was ready for her to leave. You know, it's like I've sat there at the bedside of my own 92-year-old grandmother, uh, my, my, my wife's grandmother, and, and no, one, no one wanted to have her go. It's not like, well, won't we be bored if we have her for another 90 years? No, we love life. We love her. Uh, we don't like her pain, and we don't like her disease, uh, and we'd like her to be here without all that. But no one goes, well, you know, she's put in enough years here. Let's be done with her. Uh, I think every day we get up, and, and we, we're ready to face a new day. The problems we have are the problems that are created and caused by sin. So here's the reality. We're going to have a great opportunity. I think there'll be plenty of challenges. There'll be ministry to be done, opportunities that will present us with lots to, to exercise our creativity, our dominion in the new earth that is going to keep us occupied, joyfully occupied for eternity. And certainly hell is not going to be an option that anyone is going to enjoy. So that's just a foolish comment. And I don't think anyone, getting near the end of their lives, the only thing that would make them want to be done with this life is the pain of this life. And that's the thing that's gone. If, if a 92-year-old was healthy and active and everything was great and, and cogent and thoughtful and clear-minded, we're not going to go, hey, you've, had enough, uh, you've had enough years here on the earth. Let's be done with you. No. Or another day. Let's go on another trip. Let's take another adventure. Let's solve another problem. Let's create another thing. Let's put a website up. Let's do something cool. That's what people are doing and thinking. So that's just a that's a straw man that's held up about heaven. It's going to be this boring place. That's absurd. I don't think anyone really has that view when it comes to their loved ones or even their own lives uh, when they get old. The only thing they dislike are the things that are going to be gone in the New Jerusalem. Pastor Mike, thanks so much for coming on. I have a ton more questions for you, such as. Can we enjoy heaven knowing our loved ones are in hell? Can we sin in heaven? I know our audience is thinking about these questions as well, but that gives me a good excuse to suggest they pick up your book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. Mike, thanks for your clarity theologically, but also pastorally, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, Sean, Scott, it's been great. Thanks yeah. for having me today. Thanks so much, Mike. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Pastor Mike Fabares, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. 
Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.